the Bible. It was illegal to have them. And the Roman government would issue a libellus, which was a legal document stating that a person had handed over the scriptures to be burned when the Roman soldiers had come and they had offered incense to the Roman emperor. So they would hand over scripture and offer incense to the Roman emperor. And many, many, many believers did not do that. And they lost their lives because of it. And this collection of writings, which we now have somewhere around 6,000 Greek words or 6,000 Greek manuscripts, which are very, very delicate, very, very precious, and somewhere along the lines of 25,000 to 3,000 copies of the most illegal and criticized book of all time. It is still illegal in many countries to even possess a Bible. And as I was thinking of ancient words, that song, I thought about the, the phrase of the sacrifice that men and women made to preserve the Bible. During Tyndale's day, he knew this too, that if a person was found using the printing press to translate the Bible into the lingua franca, the common language of the people, they would lose their eyeballs and their hands. And he still did it. And we are blessed because of it. These men were great men. And just think about that song. The Bible is not, it is not God. The Bible is not the fourth member of the Trinity. You can write in your Bibles. You're not blaspheming when you do. It is a tool to worship the one and true God. It is to be honored because of the blood spilt to get it but it is not to be worshipped. The God of the Bible is the one to be worshipped. I want to pray this morning specifically, just for a moment, we want to lift up Jane Tyler and her husband Pete Tyler. Pete Tyler fell yesterday, a very serious accident. They had to airlift him to Jackson Trauma, and we want to, as a church, pray for Pete and Jane right now. So before we get started, I want to, to take her and to take Pete before the Lord. Father, we lift up Pete. Your word tells us in James 5 that the elders are to pray over those who are sick. So Lord, in obedience to that command, together as a church, we lift up Pete and Jane. Lord, we know that you know where every ounce of blood is on his brain. And we know that you can reabsorb that blood into the brain. You can give him healing. We know that you are the God who is sovereign over the spiritual and the physical. That you are Lord over every cell in our body, just as you are Lord over every word in Scripture. There is not a moment, there is not a morsel of this reality of our universe that you are not sovereign over. So we lift Pete up and pray for his recovery, and for his healing. We don't know the future, God. We confess that readily. We know that you know the future. We know that you know your will, but we don't come proclaiming your future. We come proclaiming your power, and we know you are able. Be with Jane and show us as a church how we might serve her in this time. Heal Pete. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, we've been talking about, and this is our, our focus of the year, we've been talking about how we as a church can connect, can get connected to the Northwest Baptist Church in a meaningful and organic way. We want to grow and, and deepen our roots here at Northwest Baptist Church. That's why our, our logo says, Growing Together. We believe that the, that the place of the Christian between this time, the, the time between the times, is to continuously grow in greater unity and in greater fellowship with the body through the unity of the Holy Spirit and through the putting to death of the old nature and by being the new nature together. So we're focusing on connect, how we as a church can connect to one another and how we can connect as individuals to the larger church. So we've been talking about our major beliefs. This is our new members class that we're doing from the pulpit. And certainly the new members class wouldn't be this long if, if done in a class. Uh, this is a different type of thing. Preaching and teaching, though similar and have a lot of overlap, are different. Preaching is the proclamation. It is the, the enthusiastic proclamation of the truths of God. And it is slightly different than teaching. As such, it takes us several weeks to get through some of these things. And I don't ever want to pack them in. We have ten core beliefs of our church and I don't think it would be healthy for us to pack and run over ten core beliefs in one setting. So this morning we're going to focus on just three, well, four core beliefs, but three in particular. The core beliefs of our church. What are core beliefs and how do they differ from core values? Core values are the five, we, we went through five values that we're going to, are going to be the foundation of our mission and our vision. Right? And we wanted to emphasize that we believe in the Bible, that the Bible is the fundamental tool for our church. It is the, the thing that tells us what and how to do with worship and righteousness. It is our guide, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It gives us the direction of the church. We believe that Christ has to be the center of everything that we do for every mission and every vision that we give for this church. Christ is the center of our lives as individuals and as our collective life. We believe that and we hold firmly to it. We further believe that God has given us a community, but not just any community. It is a community of Christians. Yesterday I went and chipped golf balls at the country club. And there are certain perks that members have there. They're members of a country club and the country club sort of owes it to them. But we want to emphasize that membership here does not mean member like member of a country club, but rather members of a body like fingers on a hand and toes on a foot, like arms on a torso. We are all one body. And we are, don't come to get out of the country club what we've paid. We come to give to the one body and to worship and serve Jesus Christ who is forever praised. We further believe that we have a responsibility to evangelize to the community around us to bring people under the knowledge of Jesus Christ and to tell others of the good news that though they're sinful, they can be saved by faith in Christ. That's slightly different then than our core beliefs. So core values are those things that we value at our core, but core beliefs 
give the right doctrine of the church. I want to say this before we get started. When Kathleen asked me this week about the music, I said, let's have a couple songs about the Bible. Ancient Words was the one I threw out, and and you gave us, uh, oh, I love that song, Uh, Wonderful Words of Life. It's such a, feel like I'm in an old bar somewhere. By the way, read the history of your hymns. That's where most of your hymns came from. We're from bar tunes. So those of you who uh, think that they didn't have that Christian relationship, yep, that's, that's a, unfortunately where they came from. But I, was, I said, look, let's, let's focus on the Bible this morning because we want to emphasize this about our core beliefs at the very beginning, and that is this, that core beliefs are the suitcase of greater biblical principles. Right? They are the suitcase of greater biblical principles. What we're about to talk about today with core beliefs are those ten statements that we believe are non-negotiables for our church. But those core beliefs are in no way, shape, or form to to ever be put above or on the same status as God's holy word. We want to emphasize that. That Creeds and confessions and core beliefs are always an outgrowth of the one final and firmly inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. So that is to say that our core beliefs, should they ever need to be modified or should they ever need to be amended, they are always done so in light of our understanding of the word of God. So creeds and confessions are always, at least those that are worth anything, are always based on God's word. Certainly the famous creeds of Christendom, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, was based on the word of God. And so where those creeds err, we correct them in light of what we understand in Scripture. So before we get started with anything about core beliefs, though, today, it needs to be understood that the Bible guides and dictates our core beliefs. Well, what are they? Core beliefs are the sinew of the body of Christ. They hold together the one body with its various parts for the proper functioning of the church. Without core beliefs, there can be no objective faith, no objective direction, and no objective purpose. Furthermore, no objective mission. That means one objective. Objective is different from subjective. It means we're all going the same direction. So subjective means our individual thoughts. That's the rule of faith today in the postmodern culture, that individually we have our own view of God and our own relationship of God. We want to deny that. We want to have an objective and agreeable one faith, one Lord, one Spirit, one Word of God. So without core beliefs, though, we don't have these objective truths. Core beliefs, then, are those essential, even non-negotiable beliefs which form the foundation of what we as a church, as the body of Christ, stand for. At no point can any of these beliefs be compromised by either individual members or the body as a whole where Scripture has not spoken. To do so is to introduce a virus upon the body that must be immediately eradicated. Just go with me back to the first century for a moment. Early 
in the mid to late 50s of the first century, the Apostle Paul was going around on missionary journeys and he was establishing churches in provinces. The Bible tells us in Acts that the, the word of God would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. So imagine like it's, it's a heat map and it's moving out, a thermal map, moving out further from the epicenter until it reaches the ends of the earth. And Paul was on missionary journeys where he was moving through greater provinces and was taking the word of God to the ends of the earth. Galatia in those days would have been the ends of the earth. They would have been on the frontier of the Roman Empire. So Paul establishes churches in Galatia. But he's got to go. He's got to leave and get back to work and, and, and establish churches in, in other places. He is obeying the command to take the word of God into all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so he leaves, and he leaves those churches with leaders, and then he finds out that the church has been infiltrated by false teachers. So Paul leaves, and men and women come into this church and begin to teach a doctrine that Paul, neither Paul nor the apostles, ever taught them. And the doctrine seemed pretty harmless. Dare I say even beneficial. The doctrine was this. The new Judaizers, or the false teachers who were known as Judaizers, had come into the church and were teaching that in order to be considered the people of God, one had to obey the whole law, including the law of circumcision. Physical, identifiable, objective circumcision. And so they had come in and they said, look, that's fine that you believe the gospel of, good, uh, of grace and you believe Jesus. We, we definitely want to, to have that. We just want to add to that that you also have to obey the whole law. Think about the danger of that. Jesus warned in Revelation, don't add, don't take away, but don't add to the word of God. Let God's word be sufficient. It's, it's hard enough as it already is. Let it be sufficient and don't add to it what God has not said. And listen to Paul's strong words as he hears that the church is now embracing a new form of legalism, they, they probably looked more holy than other churches. They, they were more righteous from their works. And Paul says, let it be said that if anyone teaches a gospel different than the one we first preached to you, let that person be eternally cursed. In other words, let that person go to hell. He says, as I have said before, so I say again, if even we or an angel of heaven should come to you and preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you first received, let that person go to hell. He repeats himself in a very small letter and in a very small time frame within three verses of how serious it is not to add to the word of God even if that person is a prophet or an apostle or an angel of God. That's how definite God's word is. Paul says of those men who taught circumcision, I wish they would go all the more further and castrate their own bodies. He says, if one of you circumcises yourself, I tell you that the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ is, 
is of no value to you. That's how serious the core values of the church are. We cannot budge on these non-negotiable beliefs. So I want to talk then this morning specifically about two core values. We're going to specifically focus on the concept of the Bible and God, but specifically on God today. I want to begin by saying this about our core values. We spend a lot of time, our core beliefs, we spend a lot of time speaking about the Bible, so we're not going to go into that. On the website, you can go under who are we and look up our core values and see what the doctrine of the Bible says. Suffice it to say this. We as a church believe that the Bible is the foundational principle, the foundational constitution of everything we do. Scholars disagree as to whether or not to put the Bible before the concept of God or the theology of God or after the concept or theology of God. What are we saying when we say that the Bible comes before God? Are we saying that the Bible is greater than God? Certainly not. And in our core beliefs, we state first and foremost that the Bible is the final rule in faith and practice. In other words, if we're going to make sense of anything else that we talk about in this church, about God, about man, about salvation, we must first establish that the Word of God is where we get all of our information. All of it. Okay, so we're not worshiping the Word of God. This is, this is not God himself, but it is the foundation if someone asks you about God, let it begin with you turning the pages of Scripture and not going to the pages of the philosophers. Then let's focus on God this morning. Let's talk about our first set of core beliefs, God. God exists. Should a man doubt that essential truth of our universe, there will be no limit to his spiritual and moral confusion. Whither is the world moving now? Whither are we moving now, says the philosopher of doubt? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing, said Nietzsche in his prophetic parable of the madman? The meaninglessness of a world without God is the consequence of modernistic thought. We think of theories like Darwinism, and we fight constantly as Christians against the, in our courts and in our churches against the burgeoning view of evolution. The threat of Darwinism was not his theory of evolution, but his commitment to atheism. Whether or not species evolve from other species is not the problem with Darwin's thought. It is that Darwin thought that that happened without God and by accident. Do you understand? So if you believe that, that we have evolved from lesser forms of life, that's fine. So long as you, Christian, I think you're very close to heresy, but so long as you, Christian, never ever assume that God is not involved in the process. What Darwin came to do was to undermine the foundation of the Bible, which was this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Darwin wanted to undermine that and wanted to state that time plus chance plus matter 
gave us the complexities and beauty of life. If you undermine this fundamental principle of the Bible, you don't have any more Bible. The, the chief witness of Scripture is this, God exists. Christian, you cannot doubt that. That is fundamental to understanding everything there is to know about God and man. Think about what times we live in, the time and the day and age of a doubting society about God. What kind of evil should we expect in this day and age? I submit to you that marriage and marijuana are just the tip of the iceberg of confusion that is about to be unleashed upon a postmodern culture that denies the very existence of a creator. It is the tip. Do you by any stretch of the imagination think that those who are atheists are going to sit down and say, now we've done it, now that we have redefined marriage? You think that's it? Get ready. You look back at World War II and all of the atrocities of communism and of Nazism, they are based in atheistic thought. Because what does it matter if I put a bullet through the skull of matter? That matter is not made in the image of God. Who cares what happens to it? That's why Japanese soldiers saw fit to bayonet pregnant women and, women and pull out squirming fetuses from their stomach and kill them and then rape them and then shoot them. Read the histories of World War II. Don't ever take this fundamental doctrine in the beginning, God, for granted. Because if you deny the existence of God, you deny the meaning of life altogether. Look at what Paul says in Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. He speaks of the consequences of the world that denies the existence of God. This is why this is a core belief of our church. Dare I say a core, of course a core belief of the Christian faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It means not just immorality. It means the denial of God that leads to immorality. Of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is to say they know it, they just want it to shut up its mouth. David said there is no place on earth where the creation does not declare day by day and night by night, I am the handiwork of Almighty God. David says that men who speak different languages, languages you and I have never heard of, languages that men in the West cannot yet translate, that even those men, when they look at the creation, know there is a God. Paul says that they know it, they just suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Atheists want to constantly say to Christians, give me evidence for God. I don't have any evidence of God. What do you think is the evidence found in a two-dimensional information of DNA that leads to three-dimensional information in an amino acid that builds 20 different amino acids that gives rise to 30,000 different proteins that go to the various parts of the body and does so continually? Is that not evidence of a creator? Does the fact that inorganic or in unaware and insensible matter behaves in a logical and orderly way, is that not enough evidence? Do you think that scientists, the further their, their, their telescopes can reach and the closer their microscopes can go, you think that they're finding evidence for evolution and for godlessness? They're finding more and more and more information for God. So that on that day, when they stand before him and they say, I had no evidence, God can say, I gave you all. You chose to suppress it because you chose unrighteousness over righteousness. I heard of a young man who went to a pastor one day. He said, I don't believe in God anymore. The pastor said, how long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? Because behind all of this theological and philosophical speculation about God is really a moral problem, isn't it? It's really this desire, just like Adam had, to make ourselves the gods of our own life and sit on the throne for ourselves. There's nothing wrong with eating fruit. There's something wrong with thinking that eating that fruit will make you like God or equal to him. That is a sin. Paul goes on. He says, for although they knew God, they knew who he was, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. That means pointless. And their foolish hearts were darkened. That means unrighteous. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That means foolish pride. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what is the chief or fundamental sin of man? It is to deny God and to have another God in his place. Idolatry is the chief sin of man. Whether it be yourself or carved images or your car or your social status or your wife, or your children, anything that should replace God on the throne is an idol. Even good things become idols. So what happens? Therefore, we're at our conclusion. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul is saying the condemnation for idolatry 
is giving the world exactly what it wants. God says to the world, okay, you don't want me, right? You want you. You want idols. You want government. You want kings. You want philosophy. You want power. You want marijuana. You want sex. You want drugs. That's what you want? Then I will give it to you. And God gives the world the greatest judgment he can give. The withdrawal of himself and the allowance of sin to be exactly what it is. The rotting, stinking sewage of unrighteousness. What happens? What does that world look like? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What is the due penalty for their error? It's not disease and weakness as some scholars argue. It is simply the fact of being erroneous. It is simply the fact of wallowing in unrighteousness. That is the condemnation of those who reject God. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. They are even inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, Faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's the last verse of that passage that should haunt us all. It's not that we're the first generation to experience sin on a grand scale. What Paul is talking about, if he's talking about anything, is that he has already witnessed the depths of debasement found in human societies that reject the core belief that God exists. It becomes a wicked society beyond comprehension. And so the last verse is the haunting verse. There has been wickedness since the, since the garden, since the fall. Read in the Old Testament, and people say all the time, oh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, as if it hasn't always been. As if things in the garden were any better after sin. When I read scripture, I read of two brothers. One that was consumed with so much jealousy 
that the other brother would bring better sacrifices to God, that consumed in his jealousy, he murdered his own blood. I heard this week of two guys in South Florida who were good friends, got into an argument, and the other shot the other one in the head. That was going on thousands and thousands of years ago. Why are you shocked that the world doesn't behave like the kingdom? It's not the kingdom. What we should see, though, increasing in greater and greater measure is the acceptance of that immorality. It might have been the case that in the past there was less acceptance of that immorality. But Paul says... Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, that's been going on, but the society that rejects God approves of those who practice these immoralities. Is that not our world today? The further we move away from the belief in the beginning God the greater and greater excuses for sin and, uh, and, and confusion of sin and acceptance of evil we should see. Christian, you, as Jesus has called you to be, must be a light to the world on this matter. Jesus said, you are a city on a hill, Matthew 5. You're the light of the world. Go to the highways and byways and proclaim, God is not dead, he's alive. Not only is God not dead, but he reigns. And in the midst of all of our question asking, where is God? Know this, he's right there, giving to the world what it's asked for. Godlessness. The children of God, don't be afraid. God loves you. God cares for you. You do not say with those men, I approve of these immoralities. Because you confess every Sunday as we sing that he is alive. That God is there. And that he reigns in power and in glory. Imagine taking a postmodernist though. Someone who believes in no absolute truth, no absolute morality. Morality is defined by your culture so that the only immoral thing is the thing done outside of what the culture tells us to do. In fact, it is immoral today to disapprove of various forms of sexuality. That is the immoral thing today, Christian. See yourself as the adversary and the immoral person today because you claim. The truth of God's word. You are the judge of the world. But imagine taking a postmodernist and putting him back in the garden with Adam and with God. At least Adam said to God, I hid. Why? Because I was naked. That's the beginning of repentance. Acknowledging your nakedness before God. That's how you get clothed. But until you acknowledge that nakedness, you're not going to be clothed. Adam at least looked at God and said, I was afraid because I was naked. 
when Jesus called Peter in the boat, and he said to Peter, Peter, cast your net on the other side, and Peter saw the miracle of fish, he turned to Jesus and said, get away from me, I am unclean, he's naked. But the postmodernists? Just imagine him streaking and skipping through the garden naked and enjoying every bit of it. And when God calls upon him, sticking his finger in his ear and saying, I can't hear you. That's the world we want to live in today as a society. Church, we have to be different than that. So our first, our core belief of our church is this. We believe there is only one God who exists in one essence and in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that God creates. That is, from nothing God created the universe. That He sustains it. That the stars and the planets are upheld by His decision to sustain it. And read Revelation. When He chooses not to, the Bible tells us that the stars themselves will fall from the sky when he chooses, by his decree, to judge the earth. God creates it. God sustains it. God even redeems it from its wickedness and its sin. Because this is not what he intended it to be. The world is to be better than the rejection of God. And he will renew it in judgment. And he has already begun to redeem it through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He not only redeems it, but he renews it. Everything which has been made, everything which is redeemed, everything which is sustained, everything which is renewed is by the decree of the God who is. We believe that all of the essential characteristics, that is the attributes of divinity, are equally distributed to each person of the Trinity so that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist equally and eternally as one God. We further believe that each person of the Trinity has distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature essence or being turn your bibles to matthew 28 19 through 20 Jesus has reached the end of his time here on earth. He is now going to ascend to the Father. And he leaves the church with a job to do. Verse 18, it says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples 
of every nation. Every nation. Disciples of whom? This is where where we find the answer. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God, whenever you hear that word, whenever you hear that name, in the beginning, God. Understand that when the atheist denies the beginning or the essence of God, they not only deny the Father, but they deny the Son and the Spirit as well. What are the consequences of denying the Father? It is denying the redemption in the Son and the regeneration in the Spirit. Church, it is fundamental to our mission. It is fundamental to our existence that we proclaim in a resounding yea and amen, in the beginning, God. Let's pray. God, we pray to you. You have been there from the beginning. You are there now. And you will be there forevermore. The Bible Lord God, tells us that you are eternal. The Bible tells us that you are three in person and one in essence. That there is God the Father, that there is God the Son, and that there is God the Holy Spirit. Let us, Father, proclaim. Give us boldness to go out into our college classrooms this week, into our conversations and to our social media and not fall away from this great truth that you God exist and that you God turning from our wickedness and from our idolatry is the answer to all of life's problems how can this world God be anything but chaotic when it denies you In the midst of this, God, protect your church. We praise you, God. Amen.